In this first week of Fast Frontiers Season 1, we have three great conversations to share, all of which are available to download now. In this episode, we're bringing you my conversation with Ian Hathaway, strategist, researcher, and author of a newly released book, The Startup Community Way, Evolving an Entrepreneurial Ecosystem. Ian co-wrote the book with Brad Feld, co-founder and managing director of the venture firm Foundry Group in Boulder, Colorado. In this episode, we dive into Ian's personal connections in championing entrepreneurship, the role of government and economic development in attracting and building a successful startup culture, the state of venture funding across the country, and the future of work post-COVID. Please enjoy my conversation with Ian Hathaway. All right, Ian, welcome to Fast Frontiers. Thanks for having me, Tim. It's good to be here. So our guest today, Ian Hathaway, man of many talents, strategist, economist, writer, entrepreneur. I'll I'll go through a couple of highlights here, Ian, but I'm sure it's not going to be complete. Ian has been publishing in a variety of channels and periodicals and has a book coming out in July, The Startup Community Way, with Brad Feld. So we'll dig into that a little bit. Uh, but he's also written for and published in New York Times, The Economist, Financial Times, and others, a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and the Wall Street Journal, advises a number of different startups, venture capital-backed startups, leads product development for ecosystem advisory at Techstars, which he's been doing for a while, uh, is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, co-founder and board member at the Center for American Entrepreneurship, and a research fellow at Boston University has his uh, degree in economics from University of Chicago. But what I learned more recently was Ian grew up in Dayton and has his bachelor's in political economy from University of Dayton. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, thanks. So Ian, you and I can talk forever because you cover so many of the things that, that I also am interested in. And you know, we connected when I was at Centrifuge and so startup ecosystems uh, is, a, is a main topic. Talk a little bit about what, you know, kind of what, what is driving you and, in, in, you know, kind of inspired you to pursue the path that you're on right now. Happy to do that. Um, I think actually, you know, you talked about it a little bit, you know, personal story. I grew up actually just north of Dayton in a little town called Greenville. Ohio. I think it was about 16,000 people when I was born and maybe 12,000 now. Big ag component, um, also part of the Detroit supply chain, you know, employment uh, peaked in the 1980s and has declined since then. One of those places, you know, it wasn't until actually recently, I've been working in the entrepreneurship space as a researcher, educator, uh, also, you know, more recently as as an advisor, mentor, and investor. But what I kind of hadn't put together in the back of my mind was that this has been central to my uh, my entire life. My father was an innovator who, you know, I don't know how many patents he has to his name, but, you know, he's been an innovator for a long time, but has struggled actually as an entrepreneur. And I've always sort of wondered, you know, as I've worked more with entrepreneurs and been to more vibrant ecosystems, you know, what would his... What, how different would his outcome have been had we been from Palo Alto, California, mm-hmm. for example, or New York, New York? I think about that, and my hope is that with this work, 
that we can increase the probability of entrepreneurs everywhere to succeed. Obviously, it's not a certainty that entrepreneurs anywhere will succeed. I, I see a, a movement taking place globally and within the United States where more of those resources are getting to more places. And so I'm really happy about that. But just tying that back to my personal story, I want to make sure that the, you know, my father's name is Richard and want to make sure the Richard Hathaways of the world have the tools they need, regardless of where they choose to live. Think about the, the role of entrepreneurship is played in the economy and the country and the, the, the mentality of uh, self-reliance, right? Yes. But there's a difference there also between entrepreneurship, generally, broadly speaking, the broad entrepreneurship and, you know, venture capital uh, entrepreneurship that, you know, that you're involved with through Techstars. So how do you think about those differences and, and how is that possibly even changing those gradations? You know, when you think of things like NDVC and other forms of getting resources to entrepreneurs who maybe aren't going to create a unicorn, but they're going to create a very vibrant business. So I think that it's important to talk about, um, you know, maybe we could do a quick level set on yep. what we mean by entrepreneurs. About three quarters of nascent entrepreneurs, so people who are in the process of starting a business or have recently formed one, have no growth ambitions whatsoever. They're doing it to be their own boss for other non-economic reasons. So we have the small business economy. I think more about, I think entrepreneurs as having an ambition to do something new or different and a desire to grow. So now that we've kind of isolated the subset, you know, we know empirically that a very small number of firms drive the substantial majority of job creation, productivity gains, and innovation, right? There are power law distributions in the business sector as there are in many other sectors. We're seeing you know, these trends being accelerated in recent years uh, across households, across the labor market, and across businesses. But in fact, a very small number of even high growth businesses will ever raise venture capital. I think the number around, it, it's something like a half a percent of all U.S. businesses will ever raise any form of venture capital. So what we're talking about is a really important but really small segment um, of the economy. Now, um, some research that I've done in the last few years with uh, Richard Florida, we produced a study looking at the geography of venture capital globally, including in the U.S. I think we looked at like 200 uh, U.S. metros and there were 500 something globally. We, it, it is concentrated in, in cities. It is concentrated in particular cities we are finding that, you know, there is a rise of the rest going on. It's actually happening at a faster pace outside of the United States than in the United States. Um, but one of the things we could talk about today is that it, it, it is happening within the United States as well. It's an empirical reality. There are some nuances to that, but I want to state emphatically that the rest is rising in the United States. It's not happening everywhere, but it's happening in more places. Let's go into that a little bit more. You retweeted one of the Richard Florida's articles, I guess, and how cities develop that personality and message to entrepreneurs to be able to track them. Which cities are doing a really good job of that right now? Well, two separate tracks here. The first is what can cities do and, and where is this happening? I believe, you know, sticking with kind of the Richard Florida creative class train of thought, I do think that one of the most important jobs of 
in particular governments, economic development, policymakers, mm-hmm. is to really stay in their lane and do the things that only governments can do. The obvious things are, you know, regulation, taxes, education, and so on. But just making your city an awesome place to live um, from the types of mid-career professionals that actually could power the companies of tomorrow. Um, and I'm going to stress that mid-career, mid-age uh, point because the you know, the myth that of the young startup founder, the Mark Zuckerberg's, you know, founding billion dollar companies in their dorm rooms. The reason they made a movie about that is because it's in fact very rare, but it's people who again have, are, you know, mid-career, maybe they've, maybe they've moved away, gotten experience, one of the big Silicon Valley companies, maybe advertising in media in, in New York or wherever, and might be thinking about coming home. And, um, they want to make they want the same things that everyone wants, like affordable housing, good schools, safe streets, and so on. I really firmly believe in this Richard Florida theory of like, is the city cool? Are there other cool people there? Could I see myself there? Mm-hmm. Um, you've lived this with the revitalization of downtown Cincinnati. You know, it was very different. I grew up going to Cincinnati for Reds games. You grew up in a baseball family, and we grew up going downtown, and it was not. It was not a safe place. And now it's a vibrant downtown, um, at least in certain areas. And so I think that's important. I had a great opportunity last year to spend a week uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. I had no history with that community before. And I stayed downtown and I loved it. I thought, wow, you know, this is, I could really see myself here. And that's how people like me and others make, make those decisions. You know, in terms of where this is happening, and we can talk about some of the factors outside of you know, is this a place where people who can start these types of companies, is this where they want to be? I think the most important point is that they actually want to be in that city um, and mm-hmm. want to establish a history there and, and, right. and, you know, grow their families there. But, you know, let's like, let's stick with the Midwest. This is happening in a bunch of places, right? I mean, Chicago is, is well known. I would put that amongst the leaders, you know, a little further down, you got Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, and then, you know, Cincinnati, Columbus, Detroit, Indianapolis, especially, um, I'd like to talk about what's going on in Indianapolis in particular, Nashville, Ann Arbor, Madison. So this is, you know, this is happening in a lot more places, even in that tight geography. And I think I, you know, I looked at some numbers just last night, and I, uh, I might be off a little bit, but more or less, I, I believe in the last, you know, 10 years, the Great Lakes region has produced com- uh, 200 companies that have achieved at least a hundred million dollar valuation. So even within venture, you know, there's a lot of activity and we're not even counting the people who have graduated from those excellent universities and have gone to start companies elsewhere or started them in those places and have moved on. So it is happening in a lot of these places. So what's your message then to the, the, the mayors or the economic development folks in those cities, if they want to be successful? Well, my message is, uh, simple, maybe even annoyingly so for those folks, um, they're looking for an answer. Tell me what to do. The problem with that is that each of these cities is unique. They're complex. There isn't one answer for each city. You know, for whatever worked in Cincinnati, isn't going to work in five other places and vice versa. I think, you know, the first step for me is that, uh, local officials need to actually engage and listen to the entrepreneurs, right? So that sounds so simple, but it's often so overlooked where, you know, governments are often 
they're organized in such a way as to be the to analyze what the problem is and then to be the solution to what that problem is rather than in this uh, information age where things are organized more horizontally bottom up especially in entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship communities the first step is do you even know who the entrepreneurs are do you know what their needs are i promise you if we looked at every business in cincinnati for example uh, that had reached some kind of scale, 50 employees, it would be shocking how many of these companies there are. And I would start by talking to those individuals who have been involved with the founding or leading the scaling of those companies and ask them, well, what was it like? What kind of challenges did you face? What would you like to see more uh, from us? And through that process of discovery, the solutions will emerge. Well, it's interesting because so, I remember early days of Centrifuge, one of the things I was drawn to was it was started by, it was actually started by the companies in town. It wasn't started by the state or the city. They were supportive, but they weren't driving it, right? So it was industry leading. Uh, but I remember with a lot of the large corporations, they thought the problem was that these entrepreneurs needed investors, invest, investment capital. I said, no, they need customers first. <laughs> if you can become customers, they'll have no problem getting investors. Yeah. The hard part is getting the customers. Yeah, that's the best kind of capital to have is revenue from customers. Um, that's something that people often just reflexively revert to. And I believe it's because it's so tangible. You know, oh, if we just had money, then everything it. would be great. Right. And in fact, to get at that, you know, you mentioned my upcoming book, The Startup Community Way. We actually provide a simple framework. We, you know, uh, you know, we're kind of level setting in the beginning. We're talking about the various parts in the system. We talk about the actors, which are the individuals and organizations, the factors, which are the resources and conditions necessary for entrepreneurship to thrive. And on the factors, we have a simple framework that we call the seven capitals. And so financial capital is one of them, intellectual capital, you know, human capital, you know, physical capital, which is sort of like your infrastructure and so on, cultural capital and network capital. And so the reason we actually refer to it as the seven capitals is to sort of remind people there are additional things that are important besides financial capital. So I believe regardless of whether what, what the amount of, uh, you know, what your investor base is, what, actually going further than that, regardless of whatever assets you have in place, by being more collaborative and helpful and focused on entrepreneurs, each community can increase the probability that those entrepreneurs will succeed, regardless of what kind of assets you have in place. It's just like helping in ways big and small, just being helpful. How can I help an entrepreneur? Now, is that going to take you the whole way? No, but it's something you can do immediately. And rather than searching for this external solution, question is, are you doing enough with what you got? And the answer is usually no. Yeah, and that rarely happens. I know in the early days, that's that's another kind of principle that I tried to instill at Centrifuge, which is we didn't wait till entrepreneurs came and asked for help. When we when we learned about them, we went to them first and asked them, how can we help you, right? Because we can't expect them to carry the whole city on their backs, right? The city has to help them. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things that we wrote into the book, you know, obviously, Tim, you're, you're familiar with Eric Eric Reese's, uh, you know, lean startup methodology, 
one of the, and actually Eric was kind enough to write the foreword for a book, which, uh, you know, was an awesome foreword. But we talk about his framework as something that community builders and people who want to engage with the community building process need to onboard, which is think of the, you know, so in Lean Startup, you're sort of obsessing over what the customer wants and needs and trying to deliver that to them as effectively as possible. This is the same concept. Figure out what the entrepreneurs want and need and try to deliver to them as effectively as possible. That's yeah. not rocket science. No. One, one thing that I think is maybe counterintuitive, and we'll see what you think on this, is I saw some research from Kauffman Foundation on this, which is startup success. I mean, you mentioned how low the odds are is more about quality than quantity. So uh, we may have 300 startups you know, attempting to be successful companies in Cincinnati. To increase our chance of success, some people think, oh, well, let's have 1,200 of those instead of 300. It'll improve our chances of success. And there's, this data said that that, that wasn't true. It it's, has more to do with quality, has no correlation to the number of startups. So... I wonder if you've seen that. I, I say that as success begets success. If you can rally around the company, the few companies that show the best chances of success, ensure that they're successful, then you're likely to spread and bloom from there. Yeah, and additionally, engaging with the people who have already achieved success and trying to engage, you know, and trying to bring them into that process. Sure. So I agree with you 100%. In fact, there's a section on our book where we go through some of the biggest misconceptions. And the number one at the top of the list is a chapter called The Myth of Quantity. Entrepreneurship, especially high growth entrepreneurship, and, 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 and even more so venture-backed high growth entrepreneurship, you know, it's all about the outliers where, you know, so these systems, these ecosystems are rife with nonlinear outcomes and behavior. And the human mind really struggles with that concept, right? So a great story is from just down the road in Indianapolis with Exact Target, mm -hmm. Scott Dorsey, um, amazing person, great company. For your listeners that maybe don't know, two and a half billion dollar exit sold to uh, Salesforce. Okay. Huge imprint, brought Salesforce to town, I think 2,000 employees or something. And now they're part of the Salesforce uh, ecosystem. Salesforce is hiring employees there. They're growing their footprint in the region. But, you know, after the exit, Scott said, okay, I'm going to go and build um, High Alpha, which is a venture studio and fund. And so he's investing in the next generation of entrepreneurs. And he wants, you know, Indianapolis to be the next great startup hub. So that's a key thing. We talk about that in the book when we refer to it as entrepreneurial recycling. So that first success can have a permanent, just a seismic shift uh, in the long, longevity of your ecosystem, but it's not guaranteed. It depends what happens after that success. That's different than saying a serial entrepreneur who's just going to go do it again which yeah. actually, what, what I've seen, the data, there's a negative correlation there, right? Too often people um, underestimate the role that luck and timing has played in their success. So they think anything they touch can turn to gold. Not always true. <laughs> yeah. um, seldom true. But what Scott's doing that's different, he's not going to do build another company, you know, sort of a company in, in a silo. He's, he's planting many seeds. Yes. Right? He's helping to create many different companies and out of which maybe another couple successes will come out of those. Yeah, absolutely. And so, 
you know, and then going a layer deeper on that. So it's like, it's amazing. If you're, if your community is lucky enough to have a Scott Dorsey, that's awesome. But what's even better is if your community has someone like that, or even, you know, a scaled down version of that, but more than one of those people, a few of them, and that those people actually work together rather than against one another. So there's some convincing research by a few academics called, uh, named Marianne Feldman and Ted Zoller at the University of North Carolina, and they call this work deal makers. And they basically, you know, to your point about, you know, the quantity myth uh, with Kaufman research, they basically show, look, if you have these deal makers and these DMLs, deal makers work together, so they're measuring the cohesiveness of that network, that is actually more predictive of consistent entrepreneurial successes than is the quantity mm. of startups or the quantity of investors. In, in terms of some of the research you've done recently, is there any stories or something that you found that actually surprised you that you didn't expect to find? Well, maybe a few things. I, not necessarily surprised, but maybe added a little nuance to things. I, you know, I haven't been doing a ton of research lately, but I have been lately looking into sort of the geography of these uh, venture back companies and venture mm -hmm. deals. One of the things is that capital is spreading outside of the Valley, as I said in the beginning, it's not happening universally. So when you look at, you know, when you calculate the share of activity going on outside of Silicon Valley, that shows that that share is falling. The, the share, or sorry, the share in Silicon Valley is falling. But when you look at the spread across the entire distribution of metropolitan areas, it's spreading, uh, it's, it's diffusing less so, which tells me that while it's, while more capital is diffusing outside of the Valley, it's happening. It's not happening everywhere, right? It's happening in a smaller number of places. The second thing I guess I would say is that, you know, exits, whether we're talking about a hundred million and up or even a billion unicorn status or unicorn exits, like those are happening in lots of places too. More than half are outside of the Valley. Like, so it can happen anywhere. The question is, you know, will it be repeated in these places where this has already been achieved, we talked about exact target, like that company goes back to the mid nineties, right? So it takes a long time, right? So by the time a, a, a potential unicorn is funded, you know, goes through that process, has the exit liquidity event and can be converted into new companies, that's a whole generation. So it's just going to take time. Silicon Valley has been at this much longer than everyone else. I think the first traditional VC fund in the Valley was in 1959. And so they've just had a huge head start on everyone else. One of the things that I think is an opportunity is, so deal activity is occurring outside of the Valley at a higher pace. However, funds are increasingly concentrating in the Valley. So there's this question of, will the startups be more geographically diffuse and venture capital industry be more concentrated, you know, sort of like a West Coast Wall Street? Right. But the opportunity there is for funds in other regions who have relationships in the valley to syndicate deals in those home markets, especially in this COVID area, that's going to become increasingly important. And I would imagine you need to I'd imagine you need to break that down by stage of investing. Right. Um, seed investing tends to be more local and the, the, the larger venture firms are likely to participate later when there are a lot more metrics and, and, and more scale. 
Yeah. So there's one caveat to all these macro trends, which you just nailed. So you look at seed funding, that's kind of happening everywhere. Angel, you know, that's, that's, you know, near, I shouldn't say ubiquitous, but it's, it's happening in many, many places. Later stage, as you mentioned, you've got clear financials, uh, companies willing to travel for, uh, investors are willing to travel for growth equity, but there is a little donut hole around series A and B. And so the question is, you know, should there be more venture capitalists, early stage VC, you know, post, post seed in more markets who would have a better feel for the types of companies that need investment? So, you know, you've, you've actually touched on that exact point. And that I can demonstrate that empirically that shows that at that stage, there is this, there's this gap. Okay, so I'm going to take that segment of our discussion to use it in our PPM for refinery. <laughs> yeah, good. Why well, maybe I could write it up in a blog post for you yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I have the data. I just haven't written it up. No, that's, that's what I saw as well. I mean, there's plenty of very active, good angel and seed investors out there. Some are government support huh? some aren't. If you, if you look at by region, pitch book data, the Great Lakes region is similar in terms of percent of deals as New England. Mm-hmm. They're both at about 9% of the deals. Uh, if you look on a dollar basis, New England's like 10% and the Great Lakes is like three. What does that say? And where we're focused, which I call early scale, that early A to A, and, and not everybody understands this, it is about capital efficiency, right? The companies that raise 30, $50 million raise it not because they need it, it's because they can, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're showing those unit economics in a capital efficient way. And so more investors want to invest. Yep, absolutely. Oh, and I can tell you just, you know, I do a little bit of, of angel investing and I was doing some in London and, you know, then saw a few deals in the Valley this year. And I was just, I couldn't even, I couldn't touch those. I couldn't believe what some of these valuations were for companies that didn't even have customers. That's a whole other place and I'm not going to get involved. That's not for me, but it's just even compared with London, it was orders of magnitude different. What message would you like, or what, what things can you pass on to those entrepreneurs who are in Kansas city right now or in Nashville or any of these other cities that are, they're trying to build their, you know, tech based, you know, company there. What should they be thinking about? Keep doing what you're doing you know, build great companies. It's like you mentioned Kansas City. You know, Kansas City has a number of uh, demonstrated successes actually becoming um, a bit of a hub in fintech. Right. Um, some of your listeners may not know that, but they've also been doing this work. There's been a concerted effort uh, to build a startup community in Kansas City for decades now. But, you know, the entrepreneurs should be that are actively leading companies should be focusing on building the best companies they can. Um, the people who want to be engaged with that process, uh, with the entrepreneurship community should be helping them in any way possible. Well, and now with this, you know, in this post COVID, you know, world where people are not as concerned about being in the same physical space, you know, what, what impact will that have on how entrepreneurs think about where their employees are? Uh, it, it seems like it's not an either, or I'm going to be in Kansas city or Silicon Valley. Why not be both? Right. And, and why not see that as actually a strategic advantage? Well, I think that it's already happened. I mean, look, my, so the company I work for, Techstars, has 
I mean, obviously there's a strong presence in Boulder, but I think two thirds of the workforce are remote. There were obviously logistical issues around running accelerator programs remotely, (laughs) but the company, it was barely a hiccup, right? We were prepared for this. I know for a fact that people are leaving urban environments or have left urban environments due to COVID. I have a hypothesis that people will enjoy where they are um, and will want to stay. And we are now demonstrating that it's possible to work remotely. I mean, I was thinking about, I mean, just to give you a flavor, for those of you who don't know, Santa Barbara is a pretty small city. I, you know, Again, I've only been here a week, but that was part of the deal. I wanted to live in a small, easy place. It took me five minutes to get to work today. I've got a little office downtown in London. It would take me, now this sounds extreme, but it's true, take the bus to take my son to school, two miles, would take 45 minutes, and then it would be another 30 to 30 to 60 minutes to get to the office. And that's just to get to work in the morning. Hmm. And so, you know, who wants to do that day in and day out? Now we've demonstrated that we can still work together. I mean, you know, we can still demonstrate, we've demonstrated that we can work together uh, via Zoom. I don't think people want to do it all the time. I think there's going to be, I think actually we're going to value being together more than ever, but I don't believe it has to happen on a daily basis. And so I feel like that shift will be permanent. I look, I don't want to predict too much because I don't know what's going to happen. If you made me predict something, I believe that distributed work will increase, but I don't believe that work from home will be permanent because people are going to get sick of that. So I envision a potential uplift in micro co-working spaces in more, you know, spread throughout the suburbs or in more cities. I actually want to be around you know, in a downtown area, I want to be around other creative people. doesn't really matter to me what they're doing as much as I just kind of want to be around those types of folks, want to be around good restaurants and things like that. So when we get back to normal, I don't need my immediate colleagues to be sitting next to me. It'd be great to see them frequently in person, but then as long as I'm around other people who kind of inspire me and are interesting to hang out with, then I'm satisfied with that. And I believe that's going to happen to a lot of people. The big question will be, you know, you've seen these announcements from Twitter and Facebook is, okay, well, can I still be promoted if I'm not at home base, right? Are the executives doing this as well? Because if they're not, if you can't be, if you can't climb the ladder outside of home base, then, you know, this whole idea of remote work is going to collapse. So we'll see how that unfolds. That's an interesting point. Okay. So speaking of future, so what, what do you think now that you have the book coming out and you're starting to think of or plan the next, your next steps, what, what's the future frontier for you and in your mind? For me personally. For you and where are you going to spend your time, you know, in terms of what you think the, uh, the next frontier is going to be? Well, I'd like to spend a lot of my time here in Santa Barbara, close to home. I'm a big traveler. I also had, before COVID, I had lots of plans to buzz up and down the West Coast um, and also to be in Ohio. But I really just think it's going to delay things for me by a year. I just want to be in as many communities as possible, helping as many people as I can and working on uh, as many cool projects as I can. So for me, that is less about, you know, where I'm camped out every night and more about, you know, where my opportunities and network leads me. Awesome. Well, thank you for 
investing some time with me today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. You got it. The Startup Community Way, Evolving an Entrepreneurial Ecosystem by Ian Hathaway and Brad Feld. I hope the launch is a huge success. Yeah, thanks. Hey, Ian. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, www.fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with others and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Again, in this first week of Fast Frontiers Season 1, we have three great conversations to share. You can listen to them all right now. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Tim Galeri, Managing Director of Sierra Ventures. Sierra Ventures.